Galatians 6.14 God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. There is no other emblem or symbol so familiar to mankind as a cross. How did it ever happen that two ugly, rough-hewn beams of wood put together for the purpose of torture and execution and death ever got such a name? There's no other device, no other contraption on the face of the earth that has the worst reputation and the best reputation at the same time. The cross is the instrument for the most awful way to die imaginable, the synonym for horror and agony and slow death, with screaming nerves and tearing muscles, and the body disintegrating in bloody hours of a living hell. We shudder and turn in horror from the very thought of crucifixion. We've never witnessed one. There's no other way to leave this world so repulsive. And yet, the cross is more precious to more people than any other sign on the face of the earth. It tops the steeples of countless churches. It stands on mountain peaks. It marks unnumbered graves. It's worn around the necks of devoted worshipers. We see it everywhere, red cross, white cross, blue cross. And it's the theme of hundreds of hymns. It's reviled and revered both. It is uh, hated and honored both. It's uh, scorned by the demons of hell and sung by the angels of heaven. How did it get that way and gain that double reputation? Well, it started in ancient history as the worst method of execution in the Roman Empire. There's no cross in the Old Testament except as it points toward the new. But we do read, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. It is the end of the road for criminals, but it was also the deathbed of the Son of God. And today we sing in the cross of Christ our glory, Jesus, keep me near the cross, beneath the cross of Jesus. And that song that's requested most, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Why? Well, 20 centuries ago, into a little colony of the Roman Empire came Jesus. He didn't come just to preach the Sermon on the Mount or to give us the golden rule, as wonderful as they are. He didn't come to be a martyr for a cause. He came on greater business than all that. A very well-known English preacher came out with a book in which he said that Jesus came down here to start a movement. When that movement fell through, he had to go to the cross. I don't know how he ever arrived at that. The prophets and sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to it from beginning to end. He came to save their people from their sins. Sin's the problem. Uh, He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The problem today is man's sin and God's son. Man is estranged by sin, all of sin. The son of God and the son of man came with no sin in him. 
and took all sin on him. And when he cried on the cross, it is finished, a holy God and unholy men were reconciled. God and the devil met in a head-on collision. Jesus died and was buried, and when they took him down from the cross, the Old Testament tells us that his visage was so that he didn't even look like a man. He had been battered and bruised and his beard pulled out and uh, all sorts of beatings and, uh, of course, the crucifixion, the nails and hands and feet. When they laid him away, he must have been a sight to see. I hope you have thought some on that. It'll do you good. And he was buried, but on the third day, an angel came down, rolled away that big stone they'd put in front of the grave, put a seal on it, put a guard over it. And an angel not only rolled a stone away, but got up on it and sat down. I'm glad the Holy Spirit put that in there. Got up there and said, now look who's in charge around here. The sin problem solved. Education couldn't solve it. Politics can't solve it. Science can't solve it. Congress can't solve it. The UN can't solve it, the universities can't, the scientific centers. We try to mop the floor today and leave the faucet running. We sweep out the cobwebs and never touch the spider. But Jesus took care of it. He went at the source of all the trouble, sin. That was his business in coming down here. As he was climbing that hill, some women were crying over here. I've never heard a sermon on that. I have preached on weep not for me. Here he was, poor Jesus. You know, folks get sort of sentimental around Easter. Uh, that poor Jesus lugging that cross up the hill. and uh, They totally misunderstand the fact that he turned to these women and said, Don't cry for me, cry for yourselves and your children. That'll do to preach on. The womanhood of this country today needs to do some crying about themselves, and if not their children, other people's children. Jesus was saying, I'm not going up this hill as the victim of an angry mob. I'm going up this hill on purpose. This is no accident. And he said to Peter, I could call down 12 legions of angels if I wanted to, a legion for each disciple that I have. And he said to Pilate, you could do nothing except it were given thee from above. What a prisoner that was. Prisoner standing before the governor saying, you couldn't do a thing if God didn't let you do it. And in the garden, he met that crowd that came in to seize him by saying, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He'd been saying all back through the past chapters, mine hour has not yet come. Mine hour has not yet come. That night, the double hour came. His hour and their hour. And they met on, head on in the garden. And when he hung on the cross, he did not say, My God, my God, why am I suffering like this? He didn't ask that. But why have you forsaken me? That was when he drank the dregs. That's when he hit bottom. God turned his back on him momentarily because God can't look on sin. A.W. Tozer, who is one of my favorite writers, Great preacher now in heaven. I was with him in his alliance, Christian Missionary Alliance Church in Chicago. And I uh, got everything he ever wrote that I can get my hands on. 
He's got one piece on the old cross and the new. You ought to get it if you can. I wouldn't take anything in the world for it myself. I carry it around with me all the time. And uh, he says in it that we've got a nice little new cross we've invented today. It's much more comfortable. And it lets us, it doesn't bother our godless way of living today much. So we've invented a comfortable cross. He's a plain spoken man. I liked him very much. I was there a week, and when I left, he said, Well, thank the Lord for one man I don't have to clean up after. Never had that said before. <clears throat> he wasn't a visitor. He was a pastor. He never visited much. He sat up there and studied about the world situation. That's plenty to study about. And the Word of God, and wrote, and he differed with most people on a lot of things that we wouldn't see with him on maybe, but I liked the way he saw it. He wasn't uh, very sociable, and that's all right, under some circumstances. He happened to be one day where one of his members was sick, and he said, well, while I'm this close, we'll drop in and see him. Dropped in, the poor fellow saw him come in, he jumped up in bed and said, my soul, am I that sick? <laughs> but he had something to say. <clears throat> And uh, he saw both sides of this thing. I preach sometimes. I don't know whether I get around to it or not here. I don't want to spoil a sermon if I do. But the other side of the coin. You know, every quarter's got two sides. You never saw a one-sided quarter in your life. And every truth, every coin in the treasury of God's got two sides. And a lot of our trouble in churches and in the Christian life is we've got a lot of one-sided Christians. They just see one side of the coin, the sovereignty of God and man's free will. You say, how you get it together? I don't. But I thank God they're both there. It says so. It doesn't say as uh, many as believed were ordained to eternal life. It says as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. How do you figure that out? I don't. But I thank God it's in there. And all the way down the line, Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, Son of Man, trust and obey, Come unto me and I'll give you rest. Learn of me and you'll find rest. You check it. Every coin in the treasury of God is two-sided. And it's that way about the coast. There's a redemptive side, thank God. Uh, the salvation side. The forgiveness side. I'm coming to the cross. <clears throat> I'm poor and weak and blind. I'm counting all but draws. Full salvation I shall find. I don't know when I've ever heard anybody saying that in the revival. I don't know whether anybody knows how to sing it anymore or not. I was brought up on that. I don't know when I've heard that old word lost. I was thinking about that the other day. I don't know when any dad or mother has told me in the last 15 or 20 years, my boy or girl's lost. I don't hear it anymore. Uh, they say, well, my Johnny's a good boy, so was the rich young ruler, but he wasn't God's boy. And I don't hear that. And it bothers me. There's the redemptive side of the cross, and for that, thank God. But there's the judgmental side of it. Death to the old man, that's what Galatians 6, 14, I just read it to you. I'm crucified to the world, the world's me. Phillips translates it, I looked it up a few minutes ago. By and that, it says, the cross which makes the world dead to me and me dead to the world. I like that. You've seen somebody asleep sometimes said, well, he's dead to the world. Well, that's one thing. But if you're saved, the cross uh, makes you dead to this world and the world dead to you. Now, 
I'm afraid most of our church members don't know anything about that because they're very alive to this world. They're running after it day and night, practically all the time, and uh, they live just about where everybody else does in this world. You can't tell the difference. Uh, nine out of ten, it seems to me today. And uh, we have lost out on this part of this verse. Everybody rejoices in the other part of it, but I, know, I don't hear anybody say much about this side. By which I'm crucified to the world, the world to me. You know, we leave out a lot of things when we quote the Bible. Uh, I hear people quote uh, <coughs> uh, a number of verses, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I, people say that every little bit. But I never hear them add the rest of it. Deceiving your own selves. Why don't you put that in? If you hear the word of God and don't do it, you are guilty of self-deception. And that's bad. The cross was never meant to be a charm and a, a holy horseshoe and something to wear around your neck for good luck. To the old rugged cross I'll ever be true, it's shame and reproach gladly bear. I watched congregations on Sunday morning saying that well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed Americans. And I said, Lord, help us. I'll bear gladly its shame and reproach. And I wonder if it has ever dawned on their minds what that means. What does it mean? What is the reproach of the old rugged cross? It's the trouble you get into that you wouldn't get into if you weren't a Christian. Are you getting into much trouble? Jesus said in the world you'll have tribulation, the King James puts it, but it really says pressure from all directions. You haven't much. Oh, everybody has uh, normal pressures or abnormal these days from various directions, but because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. Some people, every time they have a headache, they think they're bearing their cross. Well, an aspirin tablet will take care of that. That's not what I'm talking about. It's identification with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. I heard of some girls that had been pretty worldly and they got saved and they got an invitation to a dance and they said, well, we're not going, but we want to give them a Bible reason. They read that we're dead to the world. So they wrote back and said, we're dead and can't come. That's all right. That's all right. That's scripture. The only thing I would object to in that is they're only stating half of it. You're not only dead to the world, you're alive unto God. Now that's the other side of it. That's the other side of that coin I'm talking about. And I know some church members are dead enough. My soul, yes. They're still moving around to save funeral expenses, but they're not alive unto God. Do you realize that the one who said the most about the world is of all people, John? You'd have thought that Paul or Peter or somebody else would have said most. John outdoes all of them by a big margin. You just go through the gospel and the epistles of John, put a line under world, you will be astounded. One time, five times in one verse. Five times. And the world, according to John, doesn't just mean uh, smoking and uh, drinking and card playing and all that. When I was a boy growing up, there weren't but about four or five worldly things. You didn't do them, you were all right. The same people who wouldn't think, of course, of smoking, and they were right, no dedicated Christian will either and all the rest of it. But some of the people 
who wouldn't think of doing those things, sit around and gossip all afternoon, tear up a half a dozen reputations before sundown. That's just as bad in the sight of Almighty God. And um, Jesus said, before I come back, it'll be like it was in the days of Lot. Well, how was it? He didn't say they were drinking liquor and carousing around. He said they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and buying and selling and planting and building. What's wrong with that? Nothing. If you keep it in its right place. But if that's all you do, if that's all you're interested in, business, money-making, just the things of this life, <clears throat> you're as worldly as some young blade on a dance floor at two in the morning. If you're taken up with this age and that's all you live for. I think of a man uh, raises hogs, that's nothing wrong with that, but that's what he lives for. Terrible thing to live for, but that's what he lives for. <clears throat> he can't get to heaven for hogs. That's all he knows. And he's a whirling in the sight of God because that is being taken up with this age. But we're not saved by the cross of Christ so much as by the Christ of the cross. Let's get it straight. When he hung on that cross, they said, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. The world would believe him today if he'd come down from the cross. They don't like the cross. They don't like the blood. The world will accept him as a teacher, as a leader, as an example. I hear John 12, 32, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw him in unto me, and it's greatly misunderstood. Some people get the idea, if I just brag on Jesus and uh, present Jesus in a general way, uh, that'll draw him into me. That's not what it means. <clears throat> it means that if I be lifted up on the cross, if the cross is presented as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's the lifted up cross of Christ with him on it. Of course, the resurrection that follows. But it's the crucified Christ. And that's why this famous minister didn't seem to have much use for the crucifixion except that Jesus sort of had to, was forced into it. But we're not saved by Christ the paragon, but by Christ the propitiation. Our third president, Thomas Jefferson, <clears throat> was a very smart man. But uh, he said, uh, he, he got him out of a New Testament all of his own, all that he could take, believe about it. And um, he said, love, your, love God and your neighbors yourself, all there is to it. said, uh, that's what Jesus came to teach. And there was, there's no mystery in it. <laughs> Did he never read, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. He must have missed that one. It's the one who is lifted up as the Savior. And Thomas Jefferson said that Jesus never claimed any other than human excellence. Lord have mercy on him. That brings him down from the cross. You don't have to understand all the meaning of it. I don't understand all about the plan of salvation. If my little head could take it in, there wouldn't be much to it. But I think of that dear soul who wrote to the great Scottish preacher, Alexander White, and said, I just can't feel that I'm saved. I don't have assurance. How do I know that I've been saved? And he wrote back. And 
Uh, the background, I think, as I recall it now, was, he said, when Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, there must have been several hundred thousand Israelites standing out there. And the fellow on the back row couldn't see that snake, couldn't make out what it was from that distance. But he said, God didn't say, see. He just said, look. Now, I hope that'll do you some good tonight. You say, well, I don't know. I just can't, uh, I can't see the plan of salvation. I can't get it all together. Well, God didn't say get it together. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. You can look, can't you? Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. That's what it says. Anybody can look. If you look with the look of faith, God will save you. And then he said to this woman, he said, sometimes I, I have hours when I don't feel as though I were going to heaven. That's the old human Adam, of course, that he was born with. And don't tell me that you... I thank God for these happy folks that are going to heaven singing hallelujah and never have a doubt or fear, but I get a little shaky about them sometimes because I think if you're in dead earnest about living for Jesus Christ, the devil knows you're around. He's going to attack you with everything he's got. He'll attack you with doubt. He'll attack you with fear. He goes around as a lion to destroy, as an angel of light to deceive, and as the accuser of the brethren to discourage. <clears throat> if he can't destroy you, he'll deceive you with wrong doctrine. And if he can't do that, he'll get you out of heart and discourage you. And when your nerves are playing a tune, he'll tell you, well, maybe you've never been saved anyhow. And you're getting all kinds of fixes. I look at some people and I believe you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that's all right. Don't get too miserable about it. If you have put your trust in Jesus like a little child, the simpler the better. Quit worrying about it. Because otherwise you're doubting God and that's a bigger sin than ever to start with. You see, you're not helping matters at all. So this great Scottish preacher said to the old lady, dear, dear lady, throw yourself in the general direction of Jesus Christ. I never heard it put that way before. But I believe that anybody that ever started for Jesus, Jesus will meet him. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And if you're a trembling so don't, uh, don't let the devil make a joke the rest of your life and just make you a laughing stock and get a lot of fun out of worrying you to death all the time. Don't, don't let him do that. Because uh, that's not what, what God intended. The greatest, one of my favorites is Mr. Fearing in Pilgrim's Progress. Mr. Fearing was scared to death he wouldn't get to heaven all his life. But he got there. Anyhow, might as well have saved himself all that trouble. <clears throat> old John Bunyan said when he got down to the river, uh, the water was the lowest I ever knew it to be. And he'd been dreading it all the time. Said he got across not much above wet shod. I love that. And I have a feeling that that's what the saint meant. When I stand on the, when I stand on the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. That's in the grand old song. If you have a spell, I do myself. Uh, I, I have, I, I've not reached those exalted heights where the devil isn't giving me any more attention. Uh, I must be causing him some trouble. Most of our church members not giving the devil enough trouble to even get his attention. They said, well, I don't understand what you're talking about, the spiritual conflict over in the book of Ephesians. Well, friend, you wouldn't. You're not bothering the devil. He's got you where he wants you right now. He's got you with your mouth shut and no joy in your heart and no song. You start giving the devil trouble. That great old black preacher out in Los Angeles, Dr. Hill, he said, you've got to get into something before God comes down to help you. 
said, Daniel had to get in the lion's den, the Hebrew children of the fiery furnace. God's not going to come down and visit some of these little dried up meetings in some churches where they're all sitting down in the basement drinking hot chocolate and listening to the minutes of the last meeting. God's not going to waste time coming down to any such a thing as that. He got bigger business than that. But you start fighting the devil and standing up for Jesus. I could take it easy. I'll soon be 80 years of age. And the devil said, if I were you, I'd quit. Nothing would please him more. But I say, well, you're a liar. And I have been from the very beginning. The Bible says so. And every time I can preach one more sermon, I thank God, because I, I'm going to cause him some trouble. And if you stir up people and get them right with God, that's going to worry the devil more than anything else I can think of. I'm crucified to the world, and the world's crucified to me. But uh, not only is that true, there's another cross, I must bear my cross. I've been talking about his. I must bear my cross and come after him. We've made us a pretty new cross today. It's dressed up so as not to offend Sunday morning bench warmers who do want their placidity disturbed by gory references to a bruised and beaten Savior with his beard pulled out and his face covered with blood and spittle and dying between two thieves. That's not pretty. And uh, a lot of people have done ridiculous things trying to dress up the crows. No, no, trying to dress up Jesus in the garden. No. Now, when he came back to John on Patmos, he was so brilliant and beautiful then. John dropped out and couldn't take it. Fell out. But, my friend, there isn't anything elegant about the crows. It grates on our sensibilities. Especially these Sunday morning churchgoers who've been up too late at the a late, 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 late show on Saturday night, and then said half asleep on Sunday and wish the preacher would stop. Uh, Ken Hudler is an artist, a friend of mine, great artist in Maryland. He paints pictures of the agony of Jesus. And I, I, I've never seen such pictures. They're terrible. I've seen pictures of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It looked like he wasn't hurting much, just suffering a minor inconvenience. But the Bible says the worst part of what he suffered was not physical, and that is bad enough. There's no more awful way to leave this world than to be crucified, hang there and die by the hour. But the Bible says that the worst of it all, he poured out his soul unto death. Now, I don't know what that means. That's beyond me. And you too. But it says so. Uh, I heard of two preachers some time ago. One of them said, the other man, I sweated blood over that. And the other preacher said, don't let me ever hear you say that again. You don't know what sweat and blood is. Jesus did. But don't let me hear you ever use that. I've got a picture hanging over my desk where I live. I didn't even frame it. I didn't want it framed. I wanted it to stay as ugly as it could be. Of Jesus in the garden, it was sent to me by James Robinson, the evangelist. I think a lot of him came to my room years ago when he was starting out and he felt God had called him to be a, a prophetic preacher. And I don't mean just preaching about prophecy, but speaking for God to this day and generation. And I'm for James Robinson. He, he names things and some folks don't like him and that's, that's, he's given the devil a lot of trouble. But uh, I, I appreciate the fact that he, he sent me this picture, he sends it to his various TV listeners, or did then, Jesus there in the garden with his arms around a huge rock. And, of course, the artist put a halo over him. And up in the air you could see him on the cross tomorrow. 
And of course it was on his mind, over here lay the disciples, Lord, help them asleep. And that thing gets me every time I look up at that. Nobody will ever know what he went through that night in Gethsemane. I've been there in the place and I've often, oh, I've often said no words that the human mind can ever think of or the tongue say can get anywhere near the agony of that hour. And then, of course, of the cross. We made an ornament out of the cross. And we hang it around our neck. I'm not talking about a crucifix, but I, I do think they ought to have a place in our churches. I'm glad to see the cross on, on every door back yonder. Some folks don't believe Baptists ought to have any cross in the church. I don't see anything wrong with a, church, uh, with a cross in church. I hope when you go out tonight, every one of you will run right smack into that and face it before you get out of here because if we had more people facing up to the cross today, they'd be living differently. <laughs> when he hung on the cross, I read, sitting down, they watched him there. Too many people today just spectators, just watching the crucifixion. Onlookers, this generation of athletic stadiums and they're facing the crucifixion as nonchalantly as women in the days of the French Revolution would go over to the guillotine where they were chopping off heads and sit there knitting to watch the beheading. They were so hardened. I think we get that way. We've hid the cross. And we've put cushions in the place of it. It's a little too uncomfortable. I was with a song leader the other day. He said, yeah, some time ago the kids put on a program in our church and said that they were supposed to come marching down the aisle up in the pulpit and come down the aisle singing Onward Christian Soldiers. One of them got the idea pretty late that we'd like to have a little cross, each of us, and carry it with us. Well, I said it was too late to go into all that. Some of them brought one from somewhere, but I took them away and put them in the Sunday school room. We couldn't get tangled up with that at this late time. I said they didn't like it. And when you get the kids dissatisfied about something, you better look out. So they came down the aisle singing, Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus hid behind the door. <laughs> I don't blame them. I don't, I don't blame them. <clears throat> don't you hide the cross behind the door? Can you sing at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away? Was there by faith I received my sight? Now I'm happy all the day. Or I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Now watch it. Content to let the world go by, Lord, help us. I, I almost give up when I get to that. And then look around the way most church members live today. Wearing themselves out trying to keep up with it. Content to let it go. My sinful self, my only shame. The only thing I'm ashamed of is me. My glory all across. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? Can you sing that? Can you sing when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The cross has a vertical beam that goes up this way and a horizontal beam that goes that way. This one stands for thou shalt love the Lord thy God and this one thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now when you get right on both beams of that cross you're in pretty good shape. That's what a revival is. 
A revival is when people get right this way, vertically with God and horizontally with people. Is anybody that you're at odds with tonight or that's at odds with you? But it wasn't my fault, you say. Jesus didn't say whose fault it was. He said, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you bring your envelope to church on Sunday, and remember that your brother's at odds with you, hang on to your envelope, friend. God doesn't want your money if you don't go and get right with your brother. Funny that we have nice ways of getting around that and excusing ourselves for it. In the church some time ago where the pastor said on Monday, a lady called me early this morning and said, I didn't sleep last night. Said, my sister's not spoken to me. We haven't spoken to each other in two years. She said, though I called her up and she's coming down and we're going to get right. That's what I'm talking about. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. That's this way. So that his blessed face is not seen. That song was written by a great black preacher in Philadelphia. His son led singing for me years ago in Grand Rapids and Toledo and Rockford, Illinois. I love to hear him sing his daddy's songs. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. And this one. How about it tonight? Is there something between you and God? Is there one point where you and God are at a disagreement? Now be fair with me. Uh, God says do this and you want to do that. And you are saying yes, but, and all the rest of it. Are you in agreement? I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Nobody's got that. But you can be uh, blameless, although you can't be faultless, because the Bible says to be. How about you and God? I find myself, I, I go out to walk sometimes, walk an awful lot. And I, I don't carry a crucifix, but I find myself saying, Lord, how am I doing this way? And then I say, how am I doing this way? It'll do you good. Uh, anybody that's mad at me or that I'm bitter toward, sometimes husband and wife need to have a little face in the cross when they get home from church. It's been some time since you got rid of that bitter spot and uh, what you've got uh, to grumble about. I don't believe we're so good here tonight that we don't have some people in this place that they need to face the cross before they even try to rest tonight. Somebody under, living under the same roof, maybe it's some teenager here ought to go to dad and mom. Or the other way around, parents maybe ought to go to the children and say, I've not been acting like a Christian. Forgive me. My old daddy used to say, nothing's ever settled till it's settled right. And nothing's ever settled right till it's settled with God. That's right. The only way you can settle it right is with God. And Paul, finally, stood before Governor Felix and said, You want to know what my daily dozen is? I'll tell you what my calisthenics are. I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. That's the cross. He lived it. He was all right both directions. Are you... Does it not matter much? Are you managing to get along somehow and leave things unsettled between you and God? Things unsettled between you and somebody else? I know a very, very well-known preacher. I think a lot of He said, I discovered that I had hatred in my heart 
toward a certain person, and I had to call him up. And I said, I want to tell you that I have had hatred in my heart, and I want to confess it, and I want to get right. And uh, that's what God wants you to do. Some years ago, I had meetings in Waco, Texas, 7th and James, church across the street from Baylor University. In the middle of the week, we went over to the BRH, the Baylor Religious Hour. And I faced the students and the faculty and the Baylor Choir and the church members on Wednesday night. And I said, I started something then I've been doing ever since. May have done it here. I said, we're going to sing. I'm going to ask the Baylor Choir behind me to sing the way of the cross leads home. And it's got two verses. It's got three verses, but we'll leave out the middle one for these purposes. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. No other way but that. I'll never get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. I think everybody in here tonight would vote for that. Unanimous. But how about that last verse? Uh-oh. Then I bid farewell to the way of the world, to walk in it nevermore. Didn't say anything about once in a while. For my Lord says, Come, and I seek my home. I belong with him where he waits. Have you ever told this old world goodbye? Now this old world is this present world order, which is of the devil, because the devil's the prince of this age. Jesus is not reigning now. The devil's in charge of things. God owns it, but the devil possesses it right now. Somebody steals my overcoat, I still own it, but somebody else possesses it. The devil's God, but not going to keep it forever. But Jesus hadn't come back yet, and the devil's a God of this age, and this big professing church today, most of it, is going to join the world church, which is Babylon, getting ready for Antichrist. Because they're not saved, so many, many, many of them. The world's not going to be converted. God never said that anywhere in the Bible. It'll be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea when Jesus reigns. But uh, the Bible plainly says that in the last days it tells you what awful conditions will exist. We'll turn from the truth to fables. Because of iniquity, the love of the majority will wax cold. That's the way it's going to be. We're looking now, and uh, Eric Severide said some time ago, he's retired now. You remember hearing him as a reporter. But I forget how he put it, but he said, the world's looking now for the man that can solve this riddle. And they are. And one of these days, it's going to get so bad, they'll turn to him, just like Germany turned to Hitler. Germany went broke, and they were carrying around a their money in uh, wheelbarrows, marks, wheelbarrows full of marks that wouldn't buy anything. And in desperation, they turned to that demon-possessed man. But that's nothing compared to what one of these days people are going to turn when all of it fails. And because it's going to, uh, we're in the worst mess we've ever been in since Adam and Eve ate us out of the house and home in the Garden of Eden. And I appreciate what any president's trying to do and what our leaders are trying to do, but this thing's got beyond us. It may pick up, and I hope it will temporarily. One of these days in desperation, with the danger of atomic destruction hanging over us, and you never know when 
the other side is going to say the word or some accident will pull the switch and some whole city devastated. And in such a time, they're going to turn to somebody who will arise according to this book and people will fall for it for a little while and then Jesus will come down and take care of him. And then Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. Friend, I want to be on the winning side. Heard of an old black man that he uh, shined shoes in a big business building. All the men knew him. They respected him. He loved the Lord and always had his Bible open. One day one of them came by and said, Well, I see you're reading the book of Revelation. Yes. He said, Do you understand the book of Revelation? Yes. He said, Now, wait a minute. He said, uh, Bible scholars have argued about it all these years, and you say you know what it's all about. Yes, sir. We said, well, what do you think it is about? He said, it means Jesus is going to win. <laughs> I mean, it means that. <laughs> you could get a thousand theologians together, and they wouldn't do any better than that. They wouldn't sum it up any better than that. So that's what I'm waiting for. But I want to watch my step, and I want you to watch your step when he comes. We're safe because... We've trusted in the Christ of the cross. But we've got a cross too. And that cross makes us dead to the world and the world dead to us. Supposed to. I want us to sing the song that they sang over at Baylor years ago. And let me finish it by saying this. I did note a few years ago that two young men, two students, were standing up there. And they told me later they got under conviction. I, they said, you made a invitation or a proposition that was that embarrassed us but said we had to do something one of them is pastor of the baptist church first baptist church Euless, texas one of the greatest churches out there and uh, he's james draper he was assistant to dr chriswell the other is bob marsh who's pastor now of second ponce de Leon church in atlanta and they both say that that night they turned about and started up another direction. That does me good.